Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black Roberts, senior editor at Plow. I'm speaking today with Alexander Rakin and Rosemary Garland Thompson. Alexander Rakin is a writer in Washington, D.C., who specializes in reporting on the ongoing normalization of euthanasia. He tweets at, at Alexander Rakin. Rosemary Garland Thompson is a Hastings Center fellow and senior advisor and professor emerita of English and bioethics at Emory University. She's co-editor of About Us, Essays from the Disability Series of the New York Times, and the author of Staring, How We Look. Sasha, Rosemary, welcome to the Plowcast. It is so good to have you both on. Um, you were the two that I really felt were the ones I'd like to talk about. This ongoing uh, slow devolution of civilization that we are uh, experiencing, in my opinion. Rosemary, do you know Joel Zivit? Yes, I do. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually relatively close with him now since I uh, started looking into assisted suicide. Well, that's right, because he's Canadian. Um, he and I were in a class together um, a number of years ago, and uh, we really got on with each other. And then the pandemic separated us uh, as it because it separated me from my school. So I haven't been in touch with him for a while, but I would love to be back in touch with him. Yeah, I, I could connect both of you. Um, he's been extremely outspoken on uh, capital punishment. Um, yes, and that's, that's where right. He his, um, and obviously, uh, the criticisms he has of capital punishment, he also has of uh, euthanasia as well, right? It uses the exact same uh, drug protocol. Um, so he's been extremely outspoken about this, um, and he is very much against the notion um, that dying with dignity is actually very dignified. Um, that said, he's uh, he, he's a remarkable man. Um, he's very brilliant. Um, also, I had fantastic conversations with him that were pretty fascinating um, because he's um, uh, an anesthesiologist at the ICU unit, ICU unit at Emory. Um, as well as being a full professor, um, he uh, uh, he has been very much impacted by COVID, and most of his patients are obviously the community around Emory, right, which is disproportionately African American. Um, and just the conversations he he was telling me of conversing with his patients, right, and the difference between um, how African Americans view healthcare. Um, especially at end of life uh, versus people who are more privileged um, was pretty fascinating. Um, and especially because it, it very much reinforced a lot of the sort of academic articles, um, which show that you know, the more that someone is uh, uh, disprivileged in life, um, the more likely they're going to want to have more aggressive medical treatment. Um, so the, common criticism, and you see this obviously in assisted suicide re regimes, right, that it's typically white, um, typically middle class um, citizens, right, who are the first to uh, push for assisted suicide. And also in uh, Oregon or um, uh, or Washington State or California, right, that they're, it's very difficult to find any uh, people of color, let's just say, who are pro-assisted suicide. Um, and I, I actually wrote an article for uh, the Free Beacon um, last year um, about how the Alzheimer's Association had a secret partnership uh, with Compassion Choices, 
uh, to improve end-of-life options uh, for, uh, <laughs> for marginalized Americans. Um, and they wanted to use, and they were going to use uh, the Alzheimer's Association's uh, database um, to uh, reach out to uh, you know Black Americans and uh, Asian Americans. They had a whole list of uh, uh, people that they were trying to push. Um, and after the piece came out, uh, within the span of like six hours, uh, sorry, the Alzheimer's Association actually issued um, uh, uh, an emergency. Uh, uh, press release that they were severing the relationship with Compassion Choices, and that palliative care um, is the ultimate goal for uh, uh, for end of life options. Um, and uh, of course, there's there's some history with this too, right? Uh, Jack Vorkian's uh, first uh, uh, patient, quote unquote, um, was uh, a woman with Alzheimer's, right? And the Alzheimer's Association of America at that time issued a pretty strong uh, press release, um, essentially, obviously not condemning any individual person's decisions, but saying that, uh, you know, the proper way to deal with Alzheimer's um, is a palliative approach. Um, and it is not, you know, suicide on demand by random uh, physicians. Anyway, that was a bit of a rant, so apologies for... <laughs> no, no, no. It seems like you kind of nipped that in the bud to a certain degree. That's amazing. I'd like to comment a bit on what you had to say, Sasha, which is really important, and that is that um, when we look at um, identity groups um, that we think of uh, politically and socially as uh, vulnerable populations um, in America, but perhaps worldwide, but certainly in America, uh, we see that uh, people in these vulnerable groups or these um, marginalized or subjugated identity groups often have a very different viewpoint uh, about medical care and medical treatment and also political and social issues than um, what we might think of as members of the um, majority groups. Um, and this is particularly the case, uh, I think, about uh, issues such as uh, euthanasia or healthcare in general, um, and uh, issues like abortion, uh, where uh, certain populations have had a history of um, unequal medical treatment or even uh, oppression and uh, certainly inequality in relation to these, uh, these issues. Um, and what's interesting is that um, people with disabilities are considered to be a, a protected category legally um, in the United States, but also um, a marginalized identity group, if you will. And um, it's interesting that um, black people in America and people with disabilities and often women align um, on some of these issues uh, as members of what might be called socially and medically vulnerable groups. I, I'm just writing a, a chapter on sort of the history of um, um, of assisted dying groups, um, uh, which is essentially the summary of the different literature that exists and also the research that I've done. Um, 
just because I, anyway, long story short, um, one of the documents that I'm, I'm just still so, I, it just confounds me, right, is um, a document from uh, the New Zealand um, Censor Board, right? So New Zealand and most English-speaking countries, um, they have different uh, censor boards about which material is deemed um, uh, valid to be imported, right? They don't have the First Amendment, and the idea being is that certain materials whether it's, uh, you know, terrorist literature, right, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, different materials that break the law, right, whether it's for child protection or whether it's for, um, uh, for extremism and other things like that. Canada has its uh, quarterly publication of materials that are deemed uh, uh, not valid to be imported. Um, remarkable how many how many of those books are about uh, are uh, related to anti-Semitism. Um, but uh, I, I've got to say it, it is a fantastic. I always get this email right once every quarter, and it's uh, it, it's I, you would really think that with more extremist literature that they would have uh, a better naming scheme. Anyhow, um, in so the New Zealand Censor Board in 2009 um, they reviewed a guide to a humane self-chosen death. Um, which is produced by the Waz Foundation, which is a group of Dutch and also Canadian physicians and psychologists. Um, essentially, it's another one of those books about a, a guide to how to commit suicide. Um, and uh, it reviews different uh, ways of committing suicide. It ranks them. Um, and uh, what was interesting is that the, comp the New Zealand Comptroller of Customs, they classified it as objectionable except if the, the ability of the publication was restricted um, to the Voluntary Euthanasia Society of New Zealand and its members who are over the age of 18. Um, because, and I'm reading this uh, verbatim, in the hands of its intended readers, the seriously ill and elderly, this book is unlikely to be injurious to the public good. And, oh boy. And the fact that this, this is 2009, right? Like this isn't ancient history. <laughs> Right, this is 2009, right, well before New Zealand um, uh, published or New Zealand uh, legalized assisted suicide, right? The fact that they explicitly point out, right, that the seriously ill and elderly are somehow not vulnerable um, to this pressure. And yet they go on to say in this uh, review, right, that what would be objectionable if it would be minors. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. And it actually, if you actually read that book, um, the physician, the doctors, right, the physicians and psychologists um, who wrote it, um, boast over the fact that there have been, um, according to their records, over 400 um, assisted suicides in English-speaking countries that have not been prosecuted, right? And in fact, they say not a single one has been prosecuted. This was um, 2009? This was 2009. So the book was published in 2006. And it's only one of many, right? So Philip Nietzsche is an Australian... Um, uh, uh, I don't know the right way to say it. He's legally no longer a physician. I think he, he lost his medical license because he was such a strong uh, uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia um, practitioner. Um, but he, he, you know, he has an online website where, where which by the way, um, you can pay using Visa or Amex, um, uh, where you can pay for a copy of his book 
um, which also details different forms of assisted suicide. And here in the U.S. as well, there's also the Final Exit Network, um, which also is involved with all of this. In the book, it explicitly states that this book is not meant um, to be distributed online um, because of the potential risk. And instead, it should be distributed to all of these voluntary euthanasia societies. Um, and yet, the copy of this book is now available online, right? Um, right. And this is also, it, it's pretty remarkable as well, just how different uh, preferred techniques, uh, for lack of a better term, for assisted suicide have evolved, right? That in the 1930s, um, it was um, different types of acids um, that were recommended to be used and were used um, with very few pro prosecutions. More recently, it, or I mean, in the 1960s, 1970s, um, it was uh, different types of sleeping pills. Um, more recently, it was helium. Um, and in fact, uh, Philip Nietzsche goes around the world um, to senior homes <laughs> with um, uh, his, you know, instructing different techniques. Oh my gosh. Um, right, so, and obviously for now, if you look in the United States, right, for assisted suicide, the drug protocols for assisted suicide have changed like five times over the last, you know, couple of years. Um, so it's remarkable, it, it, there really was, and this is a point that Hillary Finlay makes, um, who was the former head of the um, Royal Medical Society, um, in the UK, and she's now uh, 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 a lord in the House of Lord, um, or rather, a lady, I should say. Um, she, uh, you know, if there really was a peaceful way, a dignified way for uh, a, a humane, self-chosen death, right? Why is the protocol continuing to change? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder whether we could talk a little bit more generally. So you've both been doing work um, about sort of specific, Alexander, Sasha, you uh, were doing work specifically about Canada's laws and euthanasia. Um, Rosemary, you sent around a, a piece about uh, the state of play in California. Um, what what are the current sort of developments um, in both of your experience um, as to what are the newest laws? What what are how are things uh, evolving over the last you know year or so? Rosemary, do you want to talk about the California status? Well, I don't know um, a lot about exactly what's going on in California, but I can sketch out some of the differences between the application or the implementation of the medical aid and dying laws in Canada and in California, because I think it's quite instructive. Um, I've written a little bit about it and other people have written about it as well. But uh, I think the interesting way of framing it is, uh, which will lead us to be able to think about the ethics um, and the politics of medical aid in dying. So both Canada and the US uh, passed uh, I'm going to call it a medical aid in dying law, although they call it two different things, um, in 2016. So in Canada, they called it medical aid in dying. And in California, they called it the End of Life Options Act. Canada and California are about the same uh, size in terms of population. They both have about 40 million people in them. 
one big difference, of course, between Canada and California is that Canada has national health care and California does not. Uh, and so all of those, that factor has, I, I think, a lot of, um, of importance in talking about what's really important here, and that is that the number of people who have used the uh, Medical Aid in Dying Act in Canada has been enormous since 2016. It has expanded greatly um, so that many thousands of people have died under the medical aid and dying law in Canada since 2016. And that expansion has been, um, has been tremendous. In California, by contrast, uh, the law is used very, very little. And there are some numbers on that, but I don't have them available right now, but someone could look it up and, and tell us. But it's quite startling. And there's been some analysis of why that might be. There are lots of reasons. Um, one of them, of course, as I mentioned, is that uh, Canada uh, uses the law um, as part of its, uh, it has national health care, California doesn't. Uh, another big difference, of course, is that um, in Canada, the uh, medication that causes dying is administered by healthcare workers. And this is very significant. In California, in order to use the medication that causes death, you must administer it yourself. So that's a, a significant limitation as to how the actual death uh, as a form of medical treatment is carried out. And um, I think that that's uh, quite a significant difference and one reason why there may be such an uptake in Canada and not in California. Uh, there are some arguments about the equity of that um, and about the ethics of that. Um, for example, it has been argued that one limitation that California law has about uh, the restriction of self-administration, uh, which of course is there as a safeguard to make sure that other people uh, are not actually uh, killing people, um, but also it's a protection in some way of uh, both other people and of course of the person who is exercising the, uh, the practice, the medical practice. So, um, that's understood as a as a safeguard, the idea that you must administer it yourself. But it also uh, raises some medical and ethical treatment uh, questions in the sense that um, the requirement to administer the medication yourself in California may encourage people to use the law or to use the practice um, and to, to take the prescription sooner than they might take it if they were using it uh, toward the end of their lives. And so that's one of the limitations. Um, so it's very complex to think about what the differences are um, in California and in Canada. But I think it's important for us to 
add a third perspective, if you will, to this comparison between Canada and um, California, and that is to look at the case of euthanasia uh, as it exists and it has been practiced in the Netherlands and in Belgium, where the numbers of people who use the medication, who use the practice and the law, uh, have expanded uh, tremendously and kind of in the parallel way that we've seen this expansion take place in Canada. And of course, one of the um, uh, situations in Canada and in Belgium and the Netherlands that are similar is that there is uh, national health care. So it's very difficult to understand exactly why there are such differences, but I think it's important for us to take a look at those differences and we, when we try to analyze both the ethics and the um, uh, social and political implications of, uh, of euthanasia and medical aid in dying um, in our modern liberal democracies. Sasha, what, what's going on from your perspective legally? What have the changes been? Uh, I, th I think New York State was the, the place that was about to kind of like uh, be the next sort of domino to fall last time I checked in. What, is the, what have the laws been, what's been going on there? Do you know? Yes. So if I, if it's all right, why don't I just first, I, I just have all the, I have my beautiful uh, Excel chart of, uh, <laughs> of all of the May deaths um, in all the major jurisdictions. Um, and I just want to first just mention, I'll, I'll just give the statistics just because I have it right in front of me. Um, and I just want to preface this by saying that it is absolutely remarkable, um, stupefying, right? Just how quickly um, there's been a worldwide increase in the number of, you know, what is described as assisted deaths. Um, and it is, and the reason why I just want to say all this is 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 just astonishing um, is that the one of the main arguments uh, for legalizing assisted suicide and euthanasia, um, whether it's voluntary or involuntary, um, was from 1907 onwards, um, 1906 onwards. Excuse me. Um, was the fact that if you legalized uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, you would have a decrease in the number of suicides. Um, we have not seen that anywhere. In Canada, you have seen a 13-fold increase in the number of euthanasia deaths between 2016 to 2022, right? So in 2016, the first full year of legalization, um, Again, assisted suicide was legalized in Canada in 2015, um, but in 2016, you had slightly over a thousand deaths um, from euthanasia, um, almost all of them euthanasia. There's only a couple cases of assisted suicide in Canada. Uh, in 2022, the most recent year that we have data, there were there was over 13,000 uh, deaths from euthanasia. That is the fastest increase in the number of deaths from euthanasia anywhere at any time. No other jurisdiction at any other point has seen such a dramatic growth rate. Um, and in fact, if you look at it made as a percentage of total deaths, um, and I'm, this, this is uh, going to be an article I'm publishing um, shortly for Cardiff, which is um, an Ottawa-based um, think tank, but they also have a 
uh, a great uh, journal in America um, called Comment. Um, they didn't pay me to say that, but I just am a huge fan of them. Um, <laughs> and I think the readers of Plow would probably uh, appreciate uh, you know, their writing. Um, so in 2016, um, Canada, as a, as a percentage of total deaths, was around 0.5% of total deaths in 2016. Um, in 2022, it's already over 4%. This is a, such a rapid growth rate. Um, it is very difficult to... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you just a short example. Um, in December of 2022, um, Health Canada, so the strategy department of inside of Health Canada, um, by law, um, they have to publish uh, a report on uh, administrative costs related to uh, what's described in Canada's made medical assistance and dying, which again is almost always uh, euthanasia, where it's a physician who is administrating um, the life-ending uh, medication um, to the patient. Um, so by law, they have to publish this report on administrative costs. Well, how do you estimate administrative costs? Um, well, it depends on how many cases of MAID exist. So in December of 2022, they published a report saying that their estimate was that Canada was only going to reach 4% of total deaths, uh, that, that MAID is going to cause 4% of total deaths in 2033, right, in 11 years. They ended up Canada ended up reaching that target within the end of that year, right? So this is just how dramatic the rate of growth is. Um, you know, in California, um, it, California started at a much slower rate, um, but in 2022, the number of deaths from assisted suicide in California increased by 63%. The reason for that increase was that in 2021, um, California restricted many of the safeguards uh, that were uh, deemed to be barriers of access. Uh, one of the more important safeguards is that assisted suicide in California used to have waiting, uh, used to have minimum waiting days before you would qualify. Um, and before, I believe it was 10 days. Um, well, they reduced that to two days. So you lost again, eight days of waiting periods, and unsurprisingly, you've seen a, a dramatic uh, increase. Um, but every jurisdiction has seen uh, continued growth, right? So uh, for instance, again, uh, just to give an example, Netherlands decriminalized, assisted, effectively decriminalized assisted suicide in like the 1980s, 1990s. That's when they stopped really prosecuting the, the vast majority of physicians um, for you know, mercy killing, um, quote unquote. Um, you know, they only legalized it um, in the early 2000s, right? It took over two decades for uh, deaths in the Netherlands um, to pass um, more than 4% of total deaths. That only happened in 2016 in the Netherlands. Um, Belgium, by the way, which is another, which is the neighboring country to the Netherlands, obviously, um, and uh, they've also legalized euthanasia relatively early on, also, I believe, in 2003. Um, Belgium never passed 3% of total deaths to be euthanasia. Um, Canada, again, managed to do it, you know, 
uh, managed to do it in just the span of like seven years. All of this to say is that you've seen this dramatic growth rate in the number of deaths from euthanasia and assisted suicide everywhere. Um, and you've seen this dramatic increase happen in a very short amount of years, right? All of these tipping points, right, are extremely recent. Um, and it, it's worth emphasizing, again, that the history of euthanasia, right, like the, the origin of the term euthanasia the, did not mean mercy killing. The origin of the term euthanasia, um, as coined by Francis Bacon, right, was the idea that physicians should be at the place of death, right? That it's not a medical failing for a physician to be at the deathbed of a patient when the patient dies, right? Prior to that, it looked kind of bad if you're a physician and your patient dies, right? The term euthanasia as a good death um, did not mean mercy killing. Instead, you only, and this is a great book by um, Ian Daubigan, um, who's a, a, a medical historian, um, uh, from uh, the University of PEI, and he actually wrote the book on uh, the history of euthanasia and assisted suicide. Um, so what he says is that the actual origin of the term euthanasia to mean mercy killing comes out from an esoteric journal article by an esoteric author um, in the 19, uh, in the uh, 1930s, or sorry, 1930s, in the um, 1920s, right? Um, and, and the reason I'm also saying he wrote the book on it is that um, he has done a tremendous amount of research um, on showing how the origins of euthanasia and the origins of eugenics um, were all the same organizations. They were the same people, right? The, um, the vast majority of the starting member of the um, original members of the Voluntary Euthanasia Society, um, which was uh, uh, in the UK, or the Euthanasia Society of America, you can probably guess which country that is, um, were eugenicists. Um, and in fact, after he published his book, which relied heavily on the archives of the Euthanasia Society of America, which Compassion and Choices, right, the largest and, as they say, oldest assisted suicide organization, um, after he published his book and they had the, the, they held their own archives, right, those archives were destroyed. Now, he doesn't know if it was by accident or if it was by intent, right? But they were still destroyed. Um, and what's remarkable um, as well is that if you look at the history of assisted suicide, if you go into Compassion Choices um, website, um, or you read, you know, NPR's um, articles on Compassion Choices, um, or even in academic journals um, that are not published by <laughs> Ian Daubigan, um, the history of Compassion Choices always starts in 1980. That's on their website, that they start in 1980. Um, but the reality is that there's an entire history of eugenics and euthanasia um, in this country uh, that long predated. Um, and, you know, the conversation we had in the beginning, right, about, you know, these different organizations um, sharing how-to guides on how to commit suicide. Right. This is Compassion Choices who was sharing that. Right. They were activists in this regard as well. Um, and the truth of the matter is that if you look at prosecution, like criminal prosecutions over people who are pressuring others to die for suicide, you only see this if, you know, if the person who dies is able bodied, typically young. Right. Like you look at like sodium, the sodium nitrate cases. 
um, which um, uh, for Kenneth Law, who is, um, uh, whether it was he was doing it for commercial reasons or ideological reasons, uh, I, again, this is an ongoing lawsuit, um, but uh, that he was selling this, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, selling different suicide methods online, right? The fact that he was prosecuted, I would argue, and I think you see this through, you know, this is what Compassion Choices themselves in their archives mentioned, right? That the people who are prosecuted only happen if they're not, though, you know, if the people who die are not people who are disabled. Just a little housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Sasha and Rosemary after the break. So it, it, I, it seems to me that one of the things that you're describing here is a real uh, kind of slow, quick and then slow and then quick again, um, change in culture. And the change in culture that you know, allowed people to embrace youth, uh, eugenics at the beginning of the century, at the end of the last, or sorry, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, um, was kind of rapidly papered over uh, after obviously Nazism made uh, eugenics uh, kind of taboo. Um, and then it was kind of reinvented uh, beginning in the really 70s. Um, and the new, uh, euthanasia slash eugenics movement, which involves things like polygenic risk score selection for embryos, if you're trying to like get the right kind of kid, um, which involves, you know, aborting Down syndrome uh, babies, and which involves kind of tidying away uh, life and worthy of life, whether that's, you know, encouraging people to do that um, through a kind of heavy handed, if this is for your own good dear approach, or whether it's through you know, um, a more, you know, even more sinister kind of um, pressure. It's a it's a very rapid um, change with a kind of lacuna in the middle that that is the middle of the 20th century, where all of these all of this kind of lack of um, lack of reverence for life was kind of packed into Nazism. And then we thought that we weren't like that. Um, I, I'd I wonder if you, Rosemary, if you wanted to comment on that perception and also maybe on this piece that you've uh, sent around for us uh, by Don and Jay Jagannathan on reverence for human life. Um, because it seems like we're, we're trying to, there's like two different cultures going on here. There's like a, a, a present day culture of scientific, essentially, um, you know, utilitarian, uh, a sort of a tidying impulse to towards eugenics and towards euthanasia, uh, which has no kind of concept of what reverence for life might mean, or that suffering might not be the worst thing in the world. And then a an entirely different culture, which is existing alongside it, which has ideas like there's something about human life that we ought to have reverence for. And they're almost two different civilizations existing in parallel to each other. Um, does that ring a bell to you, Rosemary? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, while Sasha has 
um, Excel sheets <laughs> in front of him, which I think are very helpful. I don't have a Excel sheet to my name uh, because I am a uh, academic humanist. So what I have in front of me is um, a lot of treatises by um, philosophers and historians, really, uh, of the past. So I'd like to introduce um, into the conversation uh, the kind of history that you're referring to here, Susanna, and that would be what we think of as the history of uh, modernity or along with that, the history of eugenics. So to back up a bit, uh, eugenics, which is uh, a word that startles these days, um, was science from the late 19th century into, and this is important, the first four decades of the 20th century. So sometimes we hear eugenics talked about as a pseudoscience, but in fact, it's really important to understand in terms of history and the development of thought and the development of nation states, liberal nation states, and the development of consumer capitalist um, democratic orders, that uh, eugenics was science. Eugenics was uh, the prevailing way of thinking about social organization and political uh, processes uh, that was dedicated to the idea of improving society. This was the progressive era, and progress was unquestioned at that time. It was imagined that people could be improved, and it was imagined that that was exactly what we ought to be doing, and that eugenics, that is the science of improving people by what we think of as selective breeding or controlling uh, reproduction and uh, genetics would be a way to produce an ideal, a fair, a moral society. And as with so many human enterprises, um, where we thought what could possibly go wrong with improving humanity, everything went wrong. And it was the implementation of the premise of eliminating the unfit and increasing people understood as fit that got carried out through the Nazi regime and the Holocaust and gave us a new way of thinking about progress and about ethics and morality, and certainly about medical science. Uh, and so what we have is a really complicated situation where the ideas of making humans better and making human society better has had to change in important ways. And it's the civil and human rights movements of the mid 20th century that came after World War II and the Great War, and after what we think of as the Holocaust, that made us understand 
that the rise of science and medicalization and the rise of individualism and the importance of autonomy and freedom were complicated issues that we have to think through. So I think a good place to start is to think about an organization that I quite admire, and that is an organization that some of my close friends and disability activists or people with disabilities belong to, and that's it's an organization called Not Dead Yet. And of course, it takes its name from the um, Monty Python movie, Not Dead Yet, where uh, one of the actors, I don't remember who, goes around saying when the, the the uh, cart is coming around to pick up the dead. It keeps saying, well, I'm not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. And of course, this organization shows you that people with disabilities actually have quite a sense of humor. But it's a single advocacy organization uh, that uh, discourages and critiques what is sometimes called physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying, because it argues, and I think this is right, that these medical practices or these social practices or these legal practices discriminate against people with disabilities and are applied unfairly to people with disabilities. So it really does invoke the idea of equality uh, that is so important in a liberal democracy in order to object to um, MADE and uh, on the basis of its um, unequal application to people with disabilities. So that's a good place to start, but there's lots more to say. It almost seems to me that there is um, that we're getting to through through the sort of historical churning of all these arguments. Um, we're getting to a point of like, all right. So obviously, coercive eugenics and euthanasia are bad, and we can see that, and we can critique something like the Canadian, um, you know, regime. I, I think uh, Donna Jay. Jagannathan in his original piece for The Bulwark talked about this because the idea that you can have a human society where the people who are paying for your medical care and the kind of great and the good of your society are saying, it's totally fine for you to kill yourself. We don't need you here. Of course, it's your own choice. But it's just, we just want you to know it's totally fine if you wanted to make that choice. Like, the fantasy that that's not coercive or that that we are the kinds of creatures that that wouldn't make a difference to is ridiculous obviously that is pressuring people to kill themselves because we're human creatures and we're social creatures and that's like how you convince someone to kill themselves but even if so you know so the the civil rights and human rights era post-world war ii um taught us that individual agency and the individual person is important even in the face of like you can't smush someone out in order to improve society so we know that now however if there was a genuinely non-coercive somehow um means of asking someone hey do you want to kill yourself 
it seems like we're at a spot, and this is actually Donna Jay's second essay, which, which you sent around, we're at a spot where we have to ask ourselves, is there something in fact wrong with killing people? Is there something, is there a reverence that we need to have for our own lives that would prevent us from making that choice, even if it were a totally free choice? And that's the kind of like cultural question, um, which kind of, you know, there's nothing in materialism or in, you know, contemporary utilitarian culture that has any room for that idea that there is in human life something which we have to have, that we ought to have reverence for, even if it's the case that it's our own lives. Um, so that's kind of an, an aspect of the two different cultures that I feel like are living aside each other. Yeah, let, let me uh, let me use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, the challenge uh, in modern liberal orders of how to balance the freedoms that are the basis of liberal societies or the autonomy, that's the term that is often used, but I like the word freedom actually. The freedoms that liberal orders uh, bestow on their residents and, and citizens and the common good. And in bioethics, we talk about balancing uh, treatments and actions uh, that cause harm with the same treatments and actions that cause benefit. And so we have, I think, a very parallel situation here when we think about, um, as I said, the balance between freedoms or autonomy and the common good. So there are always going to be limits on freedom that have to do with the common good. And the example of uh, euthanasia or medical aid in dying is a perfect one in this, in this regard. For example, on the one hand, liberty interests or freedom or autonomy would say that self-determination and the ownership of our bodies is a very important principle ethically, uh, morally, and politically in modern liberal social orders. Um, it was the self-determination and ownership of your own body uh, was the main argument that was used um, uh, in the anti-slavery movement uh, that said a person can't own another person because you own yourself, you own your own body. And so that argument was a very useful one in achieving um, something that was important for uh, the United States and, and the world um, at that time. Right now, uh, the question of euthanasia or medical aid in dying um, is one of autonomy and self-determination. Everyone should have the right to determine what happens to them. On the other hand, there are other people involved. There are other issues. There is a common good that is involved here. Uh, and this is, I think, what is invoked nicely uh, by Don and Jay's uh, argument, and that is, what kind of harms exist to individuals and to the social order 
the moral order in general when we think that we own our own bodies enough that we can determine whether or not they are killed and what kinds of harms might come and to ignore what kinds of harms might come by that very exercise of autonomy and freedom that is uh, medical aid and dying. In other words, there are other people involved. For example, there's a tremendous amount of moral distress that uh, can be caused to healthcare workers who are required to cooperate in these um, medical treatments such as euthanasia, medical aid in dying, or abortion, or other kinds of life-ending practices. Uh, because, of course, um, medical people take a vow uh, to do no harm, and that vow to do no harm uh, is a more important vow than the vow to do good. So uh, medical and moral distress on the part of healthcare workers is a harm that comes from the exercise of freedom or autonomy that um, is part of what we assume to be the justification for medical aid in dying or euthanasia. So it gets very complicated very fast. And um, philosophers, of course, have much to say about this. Uh, we can imagine a conversation between someone like uh, Immanuel Kant, who uh, said that no person should be used uh, as a means to another end, uh, that all people are ends in themselves. And Peter Singer, who is a utilitarian philosopher, who has advocated repeatedly for a parent's right to euthanize or to kill their disabled newborn if they, in fact, decide that they don't want that disabled newborn to be uh, a member of their family. And this is the provocation that Singer keeps bringing forward over and over and over again. So there are large and important conversations about the, um, as I said, the balance between freedom and individual choice and what might be the common good and MAID and this increase in MAID, this expansion that Sasha has described so effectively, I think is one of the best examples uh, of this. And of course, what we need to do as a public um, in this liberal democratic order that we live in is have as many public conversations as we possibly can have to influence policy and practice. And this podcast is one of those public conversations. So thank you very much for that. Right. I, I yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in just to mention as well. Uh, obviously, it's not just uh, Singer, right, who uh, is so fanatically in favor of what is at its heart, involuntary euthanasia, right? You can call it um, the Groningen Protocol, which is what Dutch physicians use, um, which Dutch physicians say um, the Groningen Protocol is, uh, it sounds a lot better than infanticide, um, but they have different uh, criteria um, for the euthanasia of newborn um, disabled uh, children. 
This is my pet peeve, which is um, if you look at the history of euthanasia and eugenics, you see very quickly that despite the name or the public arguments that you see in favor of voluntary euthanasia, involuntary euthanasia is just the next door over, right? So, um, you know, the, the first state um, to debate the legalization of voluntary euthanasia was Ohio in 1906. The following year, they debated involuntary euthanasia. Um, you've seen this all across the board, right? The British um, Voluntary Euthanasia Society, um, they were, as they were introducing their legislations, their bills um, to legalize voluntary euthanasia, they were discussing about the expansion to children um, who have uh, congenital uh, disabilities. Um, in Canada as well, so right now, involuntary euthanasia is not allowed. Um, it is forbidden by law. Um, however, you have the Quebec Medical College, uh, for instance, advocating for the expansion of the Groningen Protocol to Canada. Um, you also have, and I wrote this for a, a cover essay for National Review um, some months ago, where I had uh, uh, conversations that um, CAMAP, the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers, were openly discussing and laughing about sedating a patient um, to make sure that the patient would not be able to resist their euthanasia. Um, obviously, I, I have no further evidence that this was actually confirmed besides the physician sharing that they did so. Um, but this is a very real concern. And this also has um, the sort of rubric um, that uh, Rosemary did such an excellent uh, job at describing um, the different tensions, um, philosophical tensions that we have around the discussion over voluntary and involuntary euthanasia. Um, so one of the issues that I find just so perplexing um, just to give a random example, um, you have an entire literature now um, in uh, journals like the Journal of Homosexuality um, about queering suicide. Um, there's a University of Ottawa professor, Alexander Barrell, who published a book um, that was titled Undoing Suicidism, a trans-queer approach to rethinking assisted, assisted in brackets, um, suicide, uh, where he essentially advocates um, that suicide and assisted suicide um, is valid, partly on the basis that trans people, queer people, uh, disabled people are far more likely to uh, commit suicide. And it's um, the stigma of suicidism, which is preventing them from being able to, uh, uh, you know, what uh, you know, Derek Humphrey, another activist for assisted suicide, um, mentioned, in fact, the formative um, activist for assisted suicide in the U.S., um, what he described as self-deliverance. Um, so you have this ongoing push to expand suicide and expand assisted suicide and expand euthanasia uh, to people who are deemed to be the most vulnerable. Um, and for me personally, um, as part of all the research that I'm doing, that for me, that's just the hardest part to understand, right? Every single group that has the highest percentage of uh, suicide cases, they're the ones who are um, targeted um, as, you know, targeted by this legislation um, and by different legislative 
um, effort. Um, so in Canada right now, there's, uh, you know, the, the government of Canada is spending millions of dollars um, to uh, push, uh, made to Indigenous peoples. Um, and you have criticisms from uh, um, uh, from the Indigenous Disability Council about this, saying that they feel targeted. Um, and they quote, <laughs> um, they uh, describe it as made grooming. Um, that uh, they want help to live. They want help with having more supports and accessibilities. Um, at the same time as we're discussing uh, as well, so forgive me if I'm ranting for a bit, but I, it, it's also really important to stress that Kansas public healthcare system, while in theory universal, uh, in practice is very much not. Um, and in Canada, there has been a tremendous decline in the quality of healthcare over the last several years as MAID has been legalized and then expanded. Um, this is not me saying this, this is the head of the Canadian Medical Association um, who last summer said Canada's healthcare system is undergoing a collapse. Um, this was the federal minister of health who said that Canada's healthcare system is undergoing a sickness. Um, you have an almost doubling in uh, uh, wait times to access basic um, medical services in Canada, according to the Fraser Institute. Um, and you have this massive expansion in euthanasia. Um, at the same time, um, as this decline in healthcare services, and at the same time, it should be mentioned that we're, that the baby boomers are in the process of retiring, right? So you have all of these articles, um, you know, just going through in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, about this ongoing, um, you know, about this sort of boomer um, wash that's going to happen with massive retirement and increase in healthcare costs because of chronic illnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the need for assisted suicide as an outlet for that. Um, these aren't just like esoteric um, activists who are saying this, but this, are, this also includes people like Derek Humphrey, um, who he is the one who founded the Hemlock Society, um, which was uh, uh, Jack Kevorkian was a member. Um, he was the one who, more than anyone else, um, pushed assisted suicide into uh, the mainstream. Um, and he, in his book, in one of his books, describes how assisted suicide is going to be uh, normalized, not through any autonomy arguments, but through financial reasons. One of the things we've talked about um, the limits of freedom and autonomy and the conflict between freedoms and the common good, um, as well as the benefit of harms and balances um, in these societies that we live in today. But there's one other element uh, of the MAID um, debate and situation that I really want us to get a chance to talk about, and that is the concept of suffering. So uh, all of the conceptualizations, as well as the language of the actual laws um, about MAID and what we call in the United States uh, physician-assisted suicide sometimes, uh, are premised on the rationale that someone uh, using these medical treatments would use them on the basis of relieving unbearable suffering. And 
there's a, a good and important history of suffering that has to do with Peter Singer for sure, uh, that I think we're going to want to look at quite carefully. Um, you may recall that utilitarianism in the 19th century uh, was in some sense based on the idea of increasing pleasure, the utilitarian idea of increasing pleasure for human beings in their lives and reducing suffering. That suffering began to be understood as something that was negative rather than something that um, was uh, inevitable for human beings and in some sense made them stronger and better and uh, and uh, more human. And that suffering was something that should be uh, eliminated from human experience. And that was a relatively new idea uh, in the late 18th and early 19th uh, and mid 19th century. Uh, and it plays a very important part, as I suggested, in the logic of euthanasia and in the logic of a lot of medical treatment. Uh, the question about suffering is that uh, what makes it unbearable? What is suffering? How do we measure suffering? Uh, Elaine Scarry wrote a book a long time ago about pain uh, in which she said the problem with pain is, is that it's unmeasurable and it's also uncommunicable to other people. It's a subjective thing that one experiences that can't be made clear to other people. And so evaluating someone else's suffering or even being able to decide for ourselves what kind of suffering is bearable and unbearable is an enormous, uh, let me just say, moral liability when it comes to a concept that will structure uh, medical treatments that determine whether people live or die. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, the novelist who um, was herself uh, a woman with a significant disability, she had lupus, uh, and lupus is uh, it caused her to die uh, early in her life. Uh, and she was a, a, a Catholic writer, and this is very important as well. And she felt that uh, suffering was uh, part of the human condition. She was also very worried that the minute uh, policymakers, if you will, uh, started applying sympathy to what they imagined as other people's suffering, rather than using first principle arguments, which she often did, uh, she said rather famously that uh, sympathy soon enough would lead to the gas chambers. And she's exactly right in terms of uh, the history of eugenics and the history of the Holocaust in the sense that the uh, Holocaust in general, and certainly the euthanasia program, uh, the eugenic euthanasia program, which killed thousands and thousands of people uh, understood as ill or with medical conditions or having disabilities or being indigent or understood as life unworthy of life, those people were killed under 
the concept of what Hitler's personal physician called mercy deaths. And so this concept of abating human suffering, making it go away through the merciful killing of others is something that I think we need to look at very carefully because it's the same logic along with the logic of freedom and autonomy and self-determination that come together to justify the practice of maid and physician-assisted suicide uh, in the Western world. I, I think that's a really excellent point. So there's two things I'd like to say. One is that um, Don and Jay's second piece, he, he discusses the idea like, all right, let's look at mercy. Is mercy the kind of thing that it is claimed to be here? And he points out that actually, originally, mercy is thought to be like, it's the mitigation of a dupe, a punishment that's due. So it's not a question of like being nice and alleviating suffering. And that's what mercy is. Mercy is, if you are due a punishment, if you've done wrong, I'm going to show you mercy and not exact that punishment or that debt from you. And that's a quite different model. Um, the other thing to say is that, like, if you do take that utilitarian uh, vision to its logical conclusion, what you get is what it, what's today called the Ethelism movement. So it's E-F-I-L, which is life backwards. Um, they've got a whole bunch of reddits and so on. And it's basically the contemporary anti-natalist movement. And they're negative utilitarians, which means that they think that suffering is basically the only negative in the world. And that positive experience does not really it does not reckon in their uh in their calculus so basically their purpose is to eliminate all suffering from the world and what they want to do is convince everyone not to have children um because then there will be no suffering in the world there will be no human suffering they they don't think that it would be good to do this right now because we can't yet eliminate all animal life and animal suffering also concerns them so you know, this is a rather large movement of primarily people in Silicon Valley, but not only there, um, who genuinely think that ideally there would be no suffering because there would be no experience. And that is what they're aiming at. And that is the end logic of negative utilitarianism of the kind that, you know, in its kind of nice form, seeks to off you when you're uh, ill and to be merciful to you in that way. Um, and I think the, the slippery, the totally um, inevitable slip away from a bodily autonomy limited um, euthanasia to involuntary euthanasia, you know, it's, you're sort of, you sort of have to ask yourself, like, well, how can that happen? If like the, our whole focus is on personal choice and bodily autonomy, how could it, we then go to well, maybe we can kill these children. Um, and I think it just has to do with, you know, the, the, the hypothesis of, you know, absolutely voluntary suicide and that be okay. That, that hypothesis is a person may kill himself because people are the kinds of things that one may innocently kill. And if that's true, then then there's no real reason to not kill other people. <laughs> like if the kinds of things that people are are the kinds of things that one may innocently kill, 
um, which has to be the case for euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia to be okay morally, then why not kill other people? Um, and, and that really seems to be kind of where the rubber hits the road for me. And yes, in, yes, in, uh, in human history, we can observe that great evils uh, or great harm often comes from very small beginnings, very small steps. Uh, Leo Alexander, who was one of the uh, lawyers in the uh, Nuremberg doctor's trial, uh, observed that uh, from small steps, uh, the great Holocaust was built. And I think that uh, we as human beings can be quite humbled uh, and and also vigilant uh, about thinking through and watching for these very small steps that can lead to great harms. And this is, I think, what you're talking about. So the idea that we want to mitigate suffering seems like a swell idea to start with, just like improving all of humanity seems like a really swell idea to start with. Uh, and there's always been a, a kind of what could go wrong naivete, I think, um, in human aspiration that gets mixed along the way with um, hubris and naivete and uh, what we sometimes call now the thin veneer of civilization. And very quickly, we as human beings uh, can do great harm to one another. I think one important philosopher for us to pay some attention to here um, is Hannah Arendt, who, of course, uh, writes uh, in The Human Condition. She's a Jew who studies with Heidegger and uh, witnesses, really, uh, the rise of Nazism and, and the Holocaust. And, and she writes in her book, uh, The Human Condition, which is published, I think, in the 1960s, uh, although she writes it a bit earlier than that, um, or she writes part of it a bit earlier than that. Um, she basically concludes that looking at uh, human civilization and looking at the human condition, that life is the highest good. And I think we can put that conclusion up against this rather startling development that you're talking about uh, of uh, E F I E F I E, the anti I'm sorry I L the antinatalist movement, uh, by thinking about uh, the pronatalism of Hannah Arendt, uh, who uh, I think has led the way in uh, the claims, the ethical claims that life is the highest good and that pronatalism is an important. Um, impulse in human communities. Yeah, uh, Jennifer Banks's book, Natality, is sort of a key read here. She, she sort of teased out a lot of Hannah Arendt's pronatalist or natalist um, vision. And it's, it's worth pointing out, um, sorry to interrupt, but it, it's, it's worth pointing out um, that, well, okay, I was gonna make, I was just gonna joke that Hannah Arendt did more than just study with Heidegger, um, but, but uh, a lot of, but all of the, you know, the there's a fantastic book um, 
entitled Heidegger's Children, right? If you look at a lot of the sort of, um, I mean, all of the Jewish students um, of Heidegger, um, whether it's uh, Leon Cass, Hans Jonas, um, you know, or um, Hannah Arendt, right? That all of them have the sort of pro-natalism and pro-life dimension to the writings. But the, the sort of beauty, the validity, um, you know, the, the, of his sort of philosophy is the idea that we can't go back, right? It's the idea that technology is a modern rupture. Um, and uh, I, I also just wanted to mention that, uh, uh, you know, just uh, when you were talking about ethalism, um, I was thinking of a quote from uh, J.K. Chesterton, um, where he describes eugenics as terrorism by 10th grade professors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think there is uh, a lot of, there's additional validity in that when you look at, well, let's just reverse life and call it a philosophy. Um, but, uh, you know, when I, I, I do, just to get a little bit, I mean, this is a serious conversation, um, but if we go back um, to sort of the Nazi example, um, actually, let's go back to J.K. Chesterton. Um, he also, in another one of his essays, he um, describes how uh, the origin of euthanasia is that first you consider um, yourself a nuisance, and then you consider other people a nuisance, and therefore their lives are uh, not worth living. Um, but I, I honestly think the Nazi example is the sort of inverse of that, right? We talk about Karl Brandt and you know Hitler's personal position, and we talk about um, uh, uh, the um, euthanasia program in Nazi Germany. Um, but it's worth pointing out that it didn't start, it only started in September 1st, 1939, right? It was a wartime measure act. Uh, and the reason why it was a wartime measure act was because two of the first bills um, that the Nazi party in 1933, right after they seized control of the Reichstag, um, the two of the first bills that they introduced was a sterilization bill and a voluntary euthanasia bill. Uh, the sterilization bill came into effect um, despite opposition from the Catholic Church. The Protestant churches more or less uh, supported it. Um, but the euthanasia bill um, was did not pass. It was introduced, um, but it was amended, um, essentially it was amended away um, because of opposition by the Catholic Church and Protestant churches. Um, and in many ways, if you actually read the uh, the wording of that legislation in that voluntary euthanasia bill of 1933, um, in many ways, it had more safeguards than exist in our uh, voluntary euthanasia programs in countries like Canada um, or the Netherlands. Um, in the proposed Nazi euthanasia bill, um, there was um, uh, it required uh, a review board. Right, which doesn't exist in any country. It required three physicians, as a, two of them being the review. Um, it required that um, uh, every all other medical treatments to be tried first. Um, you do not see those requirements in any of in any jurisdiction, right? So, look, it's one thing to say you know Hitler was a vegan, therefore veganism is bad. Um, but I, I think it's a completely different thing to look at. Well what does it tell us if we're following moral, a moral philosophy um, or a moral policy, excuse me, um, that was first advocated by the Nazi party? And this was the prelude. And the opposition by the public in Nazi Germany of 1933 uh, forced the Nazi regime 
um, to kick their euthanasia program to the outbreak of the war when they can do it um, more quietly. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I just think it's, it's deeply disturbing um, and there is much more, I, it's just deeply disturbing. I, it keeps me up at night for lack of a better term. I'd like to emphasize um, the connection between MAID and the project of justice and equality that uh, is so characteristic of the best work of liberal democratic orders in the 20th and 21st centuries. And to say that in terms of disability bioethics or the ethics of medical treatment and scientific treatment in terms of disability is that these issues are fundamental to all of us, not just to what we imagine as the designated group of people with disabilities that was constituted by the Americans with Disabilities Act, but rather that this group, the vulnerable group, people with disabilities, is really all of us, because all of us will become disabled over a lifetime, uh, because all of us have people with disabilities in our families and in our communities. And so to imagine that people with disabilities are a distinct uh, group that the larger we don't need to uh, consider very much because it's far away from our experience if we identify as non-disabled people uh, is a, a mistake. It's a, it's a mistake for us as individuals and it's a mistake for the, uh, the society uh, more broadly. So I, I wanna call for some solidarity here uh, at a time when there's much conflict and, and much polarization, that word is a little bit old these days, uh, around politics and around identity groups. And to suggest that uh, disability solidarity uh, is human solidarity and um, would invite uh, the audience and, uh, and, and the larger community to, uh, to consider that. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Caitlin Walls Shelton about the development of a Protestant theology of the body and its implications for IVF, surrogacy, birth control, and more.